0: Welcome to the show, hallo and herzlich willkommen to the podcast. I have figured out, after a long period of trial and error, how to edit my podcast remotely, which is really exciting. It means that although the audio quality will not be as good as normal, still, I will be able to incorporate music and different sounds and other things of this nature, and I think that will increase not only my ability to produce content while I'm traveling, but also, of course, increase the pleasurability when you're consuming content. So, quick updates about me and my travels. I left Peru about two weeks ago now, and it was a whole debacle trying to leave Peru. I did end up staying an extra day because of some crazy issues that arise arose. Um, and now I'm in Spain, and it's been very relaxing. I've gotten a lot of work done. And of course, a lot of made a lot of headway on things like graduate school next year and getting my project done that I'm doing now more completed. Uh, doing catching up on a lot of the trip journal that i'm doing for this circumnavigation as well as the other requirements for the grant like the blog posts for example and there's a there's two blogs one is through northwestern and through this organization that is paying for me to do this project The other is a personal blog that I have on relevanceofliterature.com. If you go to the blog tab, it is called Circumnavigation Curio, and it is uh, a photo blog, actually, and I explain a little bit at the head of each post about what I have done that day, and what I'm looking forward to, and my thoughts and feelings about the day just you know 30 words or so and then i post all of the pictures that i took that day on my trip and i think it's a really cool way to keep up with what i'm doing without having to spend a lot of time thinking about okay i gotta read this whole thing and then (laughs) watch the pictures or watch videos it's none of that it's very uninvolved and you can inform about a lot through the pictures that i take and i try to be not only curated about the pictures that I take throughout the day but also I try to take pictures that are really informative and give a lot of information and communicate a lot about the experiences that I've had and from what I've heard from colleagues, friends and families who have family members who have looked at the blog that they've really gotten a lot from it and that's kind of settled their own nerves and anxieties about the trip. And of course, it's a huge trip. It's something um, that I am so lucky to be able to do and not a lot of people do, especially in the wake of the pandemic and all of these world disasters that are going on. So I think, yeah, it it kind of brings the whole trip and the idea and the day-to-day down to earth and down to simple components. And I think that really can bring a lot to your experience if you want to keep track of where I am, where I'm going. But as I said, I'm in Malaga, Spain now. I move to Prague, Czech Republic in a few days on Monday which is when I will post this episode probably. (laughs) So uh, I'll be en route to the Czech Republic by the time you're listening to this. So today's episode is on Persuasion by Jane Austen. I have been doing a very mixed approach to my reading recently, and I'll give you a quick background about that because the way I came to Persuasion by Jane Austen is because of this approach to reading. So I've been reading a lot on my Kindle, of course, and that's been, I would say, my main source. If you look at like all the reading I've done, the main source of my reading has been coming from my Kindle. I've been reading How to Travel with the Salmon and other essays uh, by Umberto Eco, and an Italian linguist and writer. I will hopefully be doing an episode on that Quite soon, and I've been reading Mount um, Hans mitchar for Zusa by a Turkish German journalist who I really admire. Her name is Hatis um, Akun, and that's been really fun. I actually had started that like quite a few years ago and gotten maybe Seven or eight percent into the book and just never finished. So it's been it's been really cool to like start over, get to the point where I had stopped before and then continue on. And this book will take me a while to get through. I imagine just because it's a lot of like family dynamics, a lot of keeping track of the various characters that she's juggling, and of course, attending to the amazing humor and insight that Akun builds into her own story. Um, and this is a, it's sort of autobiographical uh, in the sense that she's talking about the, her life as a Turkish-German woman who, you know, grew up in Germany with a Turkish family, so has all these traditions, but has preferences that are very, uh, quote-unquote, westernized and, quote-unquote, very German. And so it, there's a lot of humor and a lot of lightheartedness in her narrative but of course it's very serious and it has to do with issues of identity and culture and acceptance which I think is something that I always want to learn more about and want to understand more about experiences of other people especially if they're multicultural like I am and grew up in a family similar to mine who had yeah, you know, I had a parent who immigrated to the states and grew up with a lot of different traditions, quote-unquote different, that were normal to me and that I cherish to this day but still kind of mark me as a bit different than people who whose families have been in the states for years and years. And along the way, of course, thinking about what I'm going to read next, What I uh, want to continue on with. I have several downloads from um, what before I left on the trip. I have a Thomas Mann book that I would really like to read. Um, Yeah, a lot of classics and things of that nature I've been drawn to lately. But I also, when I was in Peru, decided to get one paperback book and i got a book called the sign of four by arthur conan doyle it is very popular in Peru for some reason like any bookstore you go to you will see the sign of four that's like one of the only english books so i got that i read it it was amazing i super enjoyed it i could in fact do a podcast on it as well (laughs) um And I ended up giving that book after I was done to a secondhand um, bookseller, and then after I finished The Sign of Four, I was really hungry for another paperback book, so I went to another bookstore and got Persuasion by Jane Austen. And I don't know still how I will balance this need to have something physical, need to have this paperback book in my hands to want to read, to remember how much I love to read, um, versus of course having the convenience of having already bought and downloaded books on my Kindle that I do need to get through and would like to get through even more so. So it's a tricky balance that I'm striking. I'm reading a book called uh, Die Verlorene Ehre der Katharina Blum. it is like so the last honor of katharina blum um, by heinrich Böll. i believe is the author and that's also paperback so (laughs) i yeah i'm um definitely leaning more towards paperback and later in my travels here um so yeah i've been again kind of skirting back and forth between paperback kindle and i read persuasion by jane austen It was a really weird edition. Uh, And there were some things about it that I definitely did not enjoy. So I'm not gonna name the edition. I think it was something that they had printed in South America. So a lot of the inconsistencies with the edition, including the line spacing and things like that, uh, were probably just par for the course when they were printing an edition. I was a recopy really cheap. so without further ado, persuasion by Jane Austen Jane Austen and myself. I have a somewhat long history with Jane Austen, although it's not a deep history <laughs> it's very uberflackly it's very like surface level. I have read the book Emma twice um, over the course of two or three years, I've done episodes on Emma, both times that I've read it actually, it's made quite an impact on me. And I read Emma both times via audiobook. So this book, Persuasion, not only being my second Jane Austen book that I've ever read, had um, kind of a different tone for me because I was reading it hard copy myself, I wasn't having it read to me. Um, And that was, I would say actually, more similar to the audiobook of emma than i had envisioned in my head i thought oh like this will be like some sort of really in-depth journey (laughs) like dickens but i realized that it already was emma already was this long complex in-depth journey and i don't think i was giving the audiobook enough credit for that and i was listening to the audiobook each time with this extreme concentration it wasn't like I was you know juggling and doing 90 things while I was doing that I was generally walking or cleaning or something that was very low energy for me and I think I ended up tracking Emma you can go back to the Emma episodes and let me know um well enough to get the sense of the book, and the style, and the prose, and different odd quirks about it that I love, Um, despite the fact that it was an audiobook, you know, I definitely want to give credit where it's due. I did not, like, slog through each page of Emma, but I definitely, um, again, paid attention to it and gave it its full credit with Persuasion Because I read it physical hard copy, um, I actually read this book quite fast and I read it in two, maybe three days um, on various airplanes, in various waiting rooms as I was figuring out how to get on an airplane. Um, And it was a really enjoyable experience. It was so enjoyable to have this kind of longer, it's not the longest book ever, it's actually quite standard in terms of a a piece of the classical literature. Um, It's not, you know, Bleak House length, it's not Infinite Jest length. So for me, like getting through these 300 plus pages was fine. Um, Things that I really remember and love about Emma, the characters themselves are so vibrant. Emma, Mr. Knightley, um, Emma's father and her old governess, um, Miss Taylor, I think her name is. And then, you know, the of course the plot and the way that the characters interact and mingle with each other, the way that um, everything in the plot is so decisive. You know, it's like a game of chess almost, like, One piece moves, and then the entire plot reacts instantaneously. And there's something so set and so um, almost... (laughs) It's, like, premeditated about the plot, and that's what I love. It's not this, like, spontaneous random thing, amorphous thing. It's so incredible the ways that these characters bounce off of each other. and the way that the plot moves forward, you know, there's a really limited setting in Emma. They have basically this their one house, their one town, their one group of people, and yet it's a really exciting and interesting journey, and it keeps the reader engaged, at least it kept me engaged. Um, and I would also include the rereadability of Emma in this discussion. I. I very picky about books I read, read, because there's so much to read, you know, there's I haven't read so many different classical authors. I've re- I've never read Moby Dick, for example. I've never read Harry Potter. That's another example. So having a book that I actually stop the process of, okay, I'm gonna go read new books and go back and reread. That's something that's really special. and I think, the minutiae and this kind of niche that Jane Austen builds for her readers is something that's really significant to me and something that I find myself gravitating back to. It's a comforting place for sure. The other thing that I have always thought and loved about Jane Austen is that her revoir is so approachable and readable. It's not something that, it's not like Bleak House is on my mind a lot lately after reading Persuasion. We'll get into that a little more. But it's not something where, you know, I would never recommend Bleak House as the first thing that someone read by Dickens, especially if they were unaccustomed to the kind of style and the the tone of writing and the method of writing of Charles Dickens. Um, it, I think Bleak House is kind of like his masterpiece in the sense that he's working with everything that he uses in his comedic novels, Martin Chuzzlewit, for example, um, and then also his more serious novels, for example, A Tale of Two Cities, Great Expectations. You know, Bleak House comes at a really interesting point in Dickens's Avoir, in that it's later, but it's he still has novels to come it's after his social justice period where he writes oliver twist and other such novels that really talk about child labor and orphans and the poor Um, and he kind of used those uses those as a call to arms for social action so it has definitely some of that with a character named joe just J O. he has no other surname or anything And it's sort of his story and the story of these poor brickmakers and um, there's this alley in Bleak House that serves as kind of the center of the desolate and the center of the needy and the uh, quote-unquote unwanted. Um, So there's definitely some of that social justice bend in Bleak House, but again, he has more to come. There's little Dorrit after this, there's... Uh, Hard Times and of course these bigger novels like Great Expectations and Great Expectations, I think is an interesting case to bring up with regard to Bleak House because Great Expectations is the most autobiographical. It's been said to be the most autobiographical Dickens novel. I think in my reading experience it is Um, and you know having Great Expectations come a mere couple years, eight years or so after Bleak House having a lot of those kind of autobiographical thoughts already stirring. I think there's just this amazing and impeccable way that Dickens weaves the plot and the characters into themselves. And it's it's really it's amazing. It's like it's a very technical feat of writing. It's like clockwork. Um, it has to do with a lot of different locations, characters, like, you know, supporting and otherwise. A lot of different events and facts, deaths, births, you name it, you know, and over a huge span of time. In that way, it, Bleak House juxtaposes itself to a lot of Jane Austen's writing in the sense that... Jane Austen's writing is very, it's also very controlled, it's also very immaculate in that sense, but it has such a limited um, sense of different characters, different plot, um, or not plot elements, but setting elements. You know, it's very controlled in that sense, whereas Dickens, like, really expands the world that the novel takes place in, at least for Bleak House. I would not say the same for Great Expectations, by the way, or David Copperfield, but <laughs> that's neither here nor there. Um, so yeah, I think, again, like going back to Jane Austen a bit more, Jane Austen's Savoie is so approachable and so readable. And it's, you know, unlike Dickens, where I like had to dive headfirst and like didn't know what was happening. Um, Jane Austen for me was, some, uh, was literature that I could open the first page and I could ground myself. And I love that about her writing. And I think it's always been an implicit goal for me to get through her entire um, collective works. And I think that's definitely an approachable, achievable goal, you know. Um, I could even, if I needed to, like read Lady Susan next. And that's an extremely short novel. But yeah, I think in terms of picking up persuasion to read. Some of it, of course, was availability. Like, there were a couple of her other novels, including Emma, available at the bookstore, but I've always had an immediate interest in her later works. Um, And the reason why is I've been really obsessed lately with the late works of great artists. Um, Picasso being one of them, his works in the 60s and 70s. Although Picasso from what I've learned about him is more known for his like um, his work immediately around the Second World War, um, starting with Guernica, right, a very early Spanish civil War example, and also like when the Nazis invaded Spain, he had a lot to say about that and did a lot of art that was very evocative and provocative um, regarding those events, but um, I think what's really interesting to me is looking at picasso's works again in the 60s and 70s where he's using a lot more color and a lot more um there's just this mastery and this certainty about the art that i think is so juxtaposed to his earlier pieces where he's working with a lot of again like experimentation a lot of emotion trying to be provocative and in the sixties there's just this it's more about the statement, I guess. Um, it's again, I'm not an artist. I don't <laughs> I don't have any like stake in this field, but um, it just really strikes me the way that Picasso's work in the sixties and seventies takes his entire four plus decades as an artist and presents all of that at once. I feel the same way about Rothko, he's my favorite painter um Rothko's black paintings or one of the last things if not the last thing that he painted um I had occasion to see four of them I believe there's six or more um in Boston and just the way that he layers the black is amazing and like so masterful and so incredible to me and it again brings forward this entire lifetime of experience in painting um and that's something that i admire so much and like i spent hours (laughs) looking at the black paintings just because they struck me they just struck a chord in me um i feel the same way about monet you know um monet the last like big collection that he paints is the water lilies of course like what he's known for today but he had to paint the haystacks and the Spanish. Uh, seaside and you know all of these other different collections in order to get to the point where he could create the water lilies which are like bigger than you think actually so I think in the same way I'm so drawn to Jane Austen's later works including Emma including Persuasion and also the um the collection that Persuasion originally came in which is Northanger Abbey because there's this tendency for great artists to display all they've got (laughs) later in their life and I think it's so um, it just strikes me when i come across work from artists at the end of their journeys so in terms of the conception of persuasion. This is Jane Austen's last novel, published posthumously in 1818, some say a year after her death, some say two. Uh, I'm sure that different sources have different claims. The source I was using was the Jane Austen Society in England and this novel was originally published in conjunction with Northanger Abbey as I just mentioned. In 1801 up to 1805 Jane Austen lived in Bath which is the English town that a lot of this book Persuasion is based in (laughs) Um, and one of the like call signs of this society that I was reading up on Jane Austen about is that um, Jane Austen is Bath's most famous resident, which I found to be really cute. There's a lot of contention around the title of persuasion, that is, who came up with the title of persuasion, and whether or not Jane Austen would have agreed with the title or in fact whether she actually came up with it herself, and the, there's a lot of different theories. One of them is, which I found compelling, is that she would have named the book "The Elliots," which is the name of the the surname of the family that the book details. Um, "Persuasion" perhaps was a title suggested by one of her two siblings who took over her estate after she died. Her brother, in particular, seemed to have. A great influence on the way that her works were published posthumously. So perhaps the title was literally just made up by her brother. Um, I'll get into this later but the title actually quite surprised me after I had <laughs> finished the book and we'll get into that as I said. Character. So the entire development of the plot is based around the middle sister, Anne, uh, Anne Elliot, and her lost love, Captain Wentworth. So Anne, when she is 19, falls in love with this Navy, Naval officer, who's not quite a captain yet. He's not famous, he's not rich yet. And he tells her, look, marry me and I will become everything that I need to to have earned your honor essentially um she can't do it she takes the advice of her uh, aunt godmother figure she takes the advice of her family and decides against it because of place and personage issues she is now quite a bit older 27 28 something like this I think she's 27 at the time of the novel and um, she is this person who's very stuck and very stuck on this man this relationship she's turned down suitors since actually the suitor that her younger sister Mary marries um, is someone that had asked her for her and her hand first so she's in this position where she's kind of lost her bloom she feels very sort of again stuck and kind of in this position where no one is paying attention to her no one is paying her mind and yet she still has these amazing gifts of intellect of sensibility of wisdom uh, and so she finds herself in a very peculiar, I think, dichotomous place to the person that she is. Um, and it's sad to read, honestly, at first, but she comes into her own more and more throughout the novel. So it's, it's really the novel centered around Anne. It's about Anne, about her social connections and engagements, um, about her family, who has a big resonance. Um, her father is a baronet. Sir Walter Elliot, he's a baronet. He's very like um, full of himself. He's very egoistic. He's very concerned about outward appearances and about propriety and things of this nature. Um, Very one-sided as is her elder sister Elizabeth. Um, They fall into financial straits because of Sir Walter Elliot's inattention to their finances and they end up having to move the family to Bath, which is an English smaller town that has, um, it's popular because many people go there for health reasons and to relax and to get over different ailments. Obviously, Anne and Captain Wentworth are the two most developed characters in the novel, at least from, again, my reading of it. And the novel is told from a motivated perspective of Anne, so we never really lose sight of Anne in the novel, she's always present, she's always kind of there, there's an overview section in the beginning, which is very common, where the family's being introduced, and, um, you know, it starts with Sir Walter Elliot and his, the book of all of his family members that he's keeping updated as good as possible, as well as possible. (laughs) Um, But, I would say the the narration is really interesting and really intriguing to me because it's told from this bias and at points blind perspective uh, that has Anne in mind and has Anne and as well as her aunt at some points but Anne is again kind of the centerpiece of this novel. The development of a lot of the what you would think were the central characters. So Sir Walter Elliot, her sister Elizabeth, her sister Mary to an extent, she's more developed than the other two. Um, but it's really negligible. And I wondered after finishing the novel how intentional that was. And my conclusion, at least preliminarily, is that it was intentional, that these characters actually shine more when they're underdeveloped. And you can kind of leave the menu details up to the reader's imagination. It's like the shark in Jaws how you barely see the shark but it's scary because the times you do see the shark you let your imagination run. I think it's kind of the same thing here. Cross literary comparisons. I'm not gonna get too into Bleak House, okay? Because we already talked about Bleak House for like 10 minutes, I think. Um, I love Bleak House. It's uh, probably one of my favorite, maybe top 10 books that I've ever read. I love Bleak House. Uh, I hope to read it again one day. Um, the narration style really reminded me of Bleak House just because it's this omniscient narrator um, who appoints. I saw peeking through the narrative, um, so maybe perhaps narrated by Jane Austen herself or someone in the omniscient space. Um, and yeah, Bleak House is the same, narrated essentially by this like char- Charles Dickens-esque character who's very enjoyable and also pops out of the narrative at points. The um, Emma, of course, uh, Jane Austen's has this remarkable ability to indicate relationships between characters and indicate in her writing small, minute changes in relationships between characters. So that's something that I enjoy every time I read a Jane Austen novel, (laughs) including the two times I read Emma. marking these differing relationships and how they change between the characters and I think the most, the deepest or perhaps the most obvious connection to me was Agnes Grey by Anne Bronte and Agnes Grey is also one of my favorite books. I read it, if not every year, every other year. Um, It's again, it's this like one of the most peaceful like heartwarming books ever the writing is superb character development is superb i did a review of agnes gray um by Anne bronte so you can check that out if you want more on it but i think the plot trajectory the way that it like really slowly develops and you think oh like there's no way that captain wentworth would be into anne after all this time And then all of a sudden, there's this huge explosion where it turns out he's actually into her and he actually does want to marry her still. Um, It's a really, really similar plot trajectory to Agnes Grey. And I wonder if there's any influence. I would have to check the dates between the two. And of course, character (laughs) Agnes in the novel is this um, unattended kind of person who's always shoved to the side. And so is Anne in this particular novel. And I thought it would be fun to end the episode today by talking about some things I anticipated and some things that surprised me in the novel. So, first thing that I anticipated was definitely the plot. You know, knowing a general overview, I love introductions, as long-time listeners know. So, getting a sense of the introduction and a sense of the plot from the introduction, I should say, Um, I would say the plot moved in a very predictable way, according to the introduction, according to what I had heard and read about Persuasion. And of course, I would also say the language and the style that um, Jane Austen used throughout this book, the way that Anne's expression of thoughts and emotions played out. That was also very predictable to me, especially coming from a background of uh, Agnes Gray and a lot of other similar kind of books. And again, this style I was very much looking forward to reading. I really wanted to read something by Jane Austen when I went to that bookstore, so (laughs) I'm glad I found it. Things that surprised me. I would say how intense and how much build-up there was for the climax of the plot that really surprised me in a, in a good way. I um, was, you know, what ends up happening is that, spoiler alert, Captain Wentworth, after this like whole novel's worth of him showing up at Bath and at the estate that they previously have, and at various places Anne is staying, um, he ends up at Bath late in the novel, um writing this hurried leather letter while he's um writing a letter to someone else purportedly and sort of shoving it in her hand as he leaves and then um she reads it and he's professing love to her again and you know it's just it's very like kind of chummy romantic, but you've put in a lot of work at this point to for it to end out this way, and end up this way so I found you know just how much she's building up the ways that she builds it up i found that to be so surprising and actually really enjoyable to read persuasion as the title what i i i guess you know i guess i get it it's it's a lot about the give and take between characters especially at the beginning the elliots that is sir walter and elizabeth They have to be heavily persuaded to move to Bath and to get out of their financial straits. Um, And she, throughout the novel, has to persuade herself not only that she still is herself, she still is the woman that she was promised to be at 19, but she has to persuade herself about Sir Walter Elliot. No, sorry, not Sir Walter Elliot, Captain Wentworth, again. (laughs) Um, She has to kind of persuade herself that the situation will work out again. And I think that is something that's really notable in the novel, is that it is this kind of constant give and take of especially Anne persuading herself of different factors. Another surprising thing for me, and this is definitely due to the introduction, which was wanting in this edition, I'll be honest, um, was how much of the novel does not take place in Bath, like, you would think if the premise is that this royal family moves to this other town because of financial difficulties, that, like, most of the novel would take place in the other town. That's not the case. It's it's really split, like, half and a half, right? <laughs> we don't get to Bath until quite late in the novel. So I think, again, this was due to the introductions, misplaced uh, anticipations in me. But I was a little salty at the end of the novel. Like, what... Why would this introduction writer always talk about Bath and not about the other circumstances of the novel? And I think the last major thing that surprised me was how short of a read it was for me. I think I was really, again, looking forward to reading something by Jane Austen, reading something in paperback, so the fact that it took me two or three days to read this novel was. really surprising and again like a a good surprise all of these are good surprises but other than that this novel really did spark an interest in Jane Austen I think Charlotte Bronte is someone who I've also not read a ton from if anything from Charlotte Bronte um so that's something that I am going to look forward to in the coming months is an increased attention to Authors like Jane Austen, authors like Charlotte Bronte. All right, thank you all so much for listening. A long episode, but a good one. Uh, If you would like to look at any of the episodes I mentioned, I would recommend relevanceofliterature.com. You can also go to the show notes for this episode, relevanceofliterature.com slash show notes, or you can go to the back catalog it's right accessible from the home page again i hope you enjoyed greetings from malaga and i will catch up with you all next week